So on the show today um, is a very special guest for me because um, the person is more than just a guest. Um, this is, I have my father on the show today. And so uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for the invitation to be on your show. Um, so there's obviously a lot of things we could talk about, but I thought um, it would be good for us to almost just to make this like, you know, just conversations with a long time pastor. Um, actually yesterday you and I were talking about it and I, I asked you if you had any plans on retiring and you said, no, not right now. And the reason being, I'm still fresh. My mind is still sharp. Uh, I still have a few more. Um, I, I think there's a few things the Lord still has left for me to do. I don't have any health issues, and I'm still prime and ready to go. I'm not bored. I'm not tired of my work, and I think I still have a major contribution to make. So at this point, I'm not preparing for retirement, even though I am preparing for the next generation. I'm preparing to hand over. It's just that I'm not ready to walk out of the door yet. So basically, you're saying that after 34, right, 34 years of full-time ministry, you're still good and ready to go. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm okay. still ready to go. So um, I have a couple of questions. So mm -hmm. the first one is, well, I asked the retirement question already, and so you answered that. Um, all right, so we have, I'd like to know, what would you say, these questions are ministry specific. And I guess as we conversate, if you want them to be not just ministry specific, obviously you can answer the questions from that point of view as well. But what would you say to your 25-year-old self, your 35-year-old self, and your 45-year-old self? Well, let me start with the 45-year-old self. Thank God for bringing me through the mistakes I've made. I think that's what that's one of the that's one of the things that I would say. As I look back, um, you know, it's just amazing the amount of things that you overlook, the things that you overthink, misreading of people, sometimes misreading of myself, um, not slowing down enough to to really hear what God is saying. To my 35 self, I would say, boy, it was a struggle focusing on family and ministry without cheating one and the other. And then to my 25-year-old self, I would say I was kind of like a Mustang on the highway. You know, red and ready to go, a lot of energy, a lot of ideas, and... Um, not reckless, but fearless. So I would say thank God for restraining my zeal and my excitement and my energy. I mean, you don't feel like you've lost any of that fearlessness. 
Oh no, 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 no. I actually, it's interesting that you, you asked that. I had a gentleman from church call me maybe about three months ago and he said, Pastor, I'm really afraid for you. I said, why? He said, because you're afraid of very little. And I, I'm just afraid that you might get yourself into trouble. And he wasn't talking about moral trouble, anything like that. Just without with being so fearless, it's just some things you don't take into consideration. But I, I think the Lord has matured me enough to where my fearlessness is tapered, but not restrained. So, I mean, could you think of a time where that fearlessness may have got you into trouble? Or are you saying, like, more often than not, it, it was contained? More often than I was contained, but you, it, it's 90% of the time it caused criticism, even by those close to me. But one of the things that I'm really, really grateful for in context of being grateful to the Lord is that most of the criticism I received in the spur of the moment, people came back to say, now I see why. And so God's grace has been really, really powerfully administered to me with a fearless type spirit in nature. And I, I've had that said to me over and over. You know, some of my elders say to me, we're at the point now when we think you're doing something out of order, or not, not out of order in the sense of wrong, but kind of like, what in the world is he doing? We've come enough, we've come along with you long enough to know. Just watch it through. He sees stuff we don't see. So it's been more in my favor than against me. But I've been misread by every authority and have received quite a bit of criticism. And that most of that is due to the fearlessness you're talking about. Yes, just willing to take a stand, willing to try something different, willing to push the congregation, not, not so much push, willing to direct the congregation's energies in an area that is just not common for church. Uh, for example, I remember about 18 years ago, I decided we will not have a watch night service. And as you know, in the Bahamas, the watch night service is a prime service. Right. I mean, and I mean, just for those, just for clarification, a watch night service is a service that takes place the night before the New Year's yes, Day. Yes, it right? is so a, a service that would normally begin around 10 a.m. on the last day of the year. 10 p.m. Rather, sorry, 10 p.m. And it would end about midnight you know, 10 past midnight the following morning. So technically you would bring the new year in in a church service. And Correct. that's a staple service for our country. And it just was not working for us. You would have eight to 10 people. You're talking about a congregation that has a, an attendance of, you know, like maybe 100, uh, 250, two to 250. Uh, and then you, you have six and eight people showing up. And I'm saying this isn't working. And I just stood up in the pulpit one morning and said, this will be our last New Year's service, New Year's night service, watch night service. And the congregation thought I was really losing it. And now, 18 years later, our New Year's morning service has become the standard of services on our island. So, I mean, how, how would you advise pastors? Because what you just described, I mean, obviously you use the example of a watch night service, but... I, and not just me, I think, I think every pastor, and obviously not just in this country, but around the world, you know, we're faced with making decisions 
And a lot of those decisions aren't necessarily, um, they don't have to do with the truth of scripture. And so, you know, there's nothing in scripture that talks about what type of service you should have for the new year or for Christmas or whatever the case may be. And there's a lot of pastors that have to make decisions based on what's best for the congregation, what, uh, what goals and vision that they have for the future. Um, you know, there are some sacred cows that really do need to be, to be dead. Uh, but that, those are hard decisions to make. And I know in my short time of pastoring, it seems like though there's always a, uh, an item on the whiteboard that falls into that category. Should we do this or should we not do this? Should we get rid of this or should we not get rid of this? If we decide to cancel this, what percentage of the church are we going to make upset? If we decide to cancel this, how many people are going to, you know, give us a gift card because they're thankful that we don't have to do this anymore. And those conversations, as you know, can be very exhausting. And, and so how, like, how have you walked through those in the past? And more importantly, or I should say more in a more helpful way, how would you advise young pastors like myself when it comes to making those types of decisions? You have to have what I call brownie points. You have to have a legacy or a, a record of making decisions of that nature with a measure of success. So what ends up happening is people then begin to trust you more than they trust the outcome, more, more than they fear the outcome, rather. When you would have had a, a record of where people could say, boy, we thought that was a silly decision or an unwise decision back then, and it proved to be better for us. This proved to be better for us. I think that is one of the things that's necessary. Number two, sometimes you have to be sensitive to where the congregation is and, and lead them. And one of the phrases that has helped me in ministry when it comes to making changes is this simple phrase, we're going to try something. We're going to try something. And when I use that phrase, everyone knows if it does not work, we're going to go back to what we did before. So that kind of takes the pressure off of me as the leader, and it kind of takes some of the fear away from the people. Hey, we're only going to try this. And usually by the time I would have tried it, the taste of it or the success of it is so evident that, hey, it's a no-brainer. So two things. One, you must have a good history of having made those tough calls with the best interests of the ministry at hand and having success in those areas and then being sensitive to where the congregation is because there are times when you have to really pet them into trying something different. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned brownie points and gaining the trust of, of your people. And so, I mean, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem like pastors gain the trust of their people solely by what they do in the pulpit. And so how do how how have you learned to gain the trust of people? What what have you seen uh other pastors do? Like how how can pastors successfully gain and earn the trust of their people? Because we know it's not just in reference to preaching. Obviously preaching is at the center and that is that that is a main focal point, but we know it's not just that. So what what would be the other things that pastors can do or should do in order to gain the appropriate type of trust from, their, from, from his people? Well, obviously, one, you have to be seen as a person of integrity. You must be above board. 
Secondly, you cannot have a hidden agenda. You, you, there has to be a sense of genuineness in what you are doing without some self-gain. And then number three, you have, to, you have to sometimes win key people who are influential in the congregation to your idea because they have influence with people that you may not have the same level of influence with. And so a wise pastor understands who his influencers are and you win those influencers because then they will take care of the job to influence those who you may not have influence with. And then it's just being open to taking in ideas and suggestions from others about the change or changes that you want to make so that they could see, hey, you want them to be a part of where you're going and you, you're open to their input. And as much as the input that you can use, I would strongly recommend that pastors use those inputs as long as it doesn't take away from the direction that you want to go in. So what you're now doing is you're having partners. You're having a team. This is a team effort. This is us trying something. This isn't me telling you we're going to try something. So with that said, what's the short list of things that pastors do to lose the trust of people or never gain it in the first place? Speaking down to the people. Um, having a sense that you're smarter than everyone else. One of the things that I often tell the people is I, I'm, I'm definitely not the smartest guy in the room. I may be the smartest guy in an area, but I'm not the smartest guy in the room overall. So I appreciate the fact that people have um, you know, ideas and brains that I don't have. So, but when we come across as if we know it all, that's an issue. If we reject ideas that are workable, people aren't going to trust you. And whenever you, you, a lot of pastors, what they do is they have a hidden agenda. And every time your hidden agenda becomes or is revealed, you lose trust. There cannot be a hidden agenda. This is what we want to do. This is why we want to do it. I need your input to help us get it done. And then another thing is you, you, you have to be, your word has to be your bond. People have to believe that when you speak, you will execute what you say you're going to do. And if you are not able to execute it, they know that you're going to come back and explain why it can't be done before they realize it can't be done. That's what it is. Trust. You must be credible. You must be open. You must be welcoming. Now, obviously, you have what we, what I used to phrase, I, I saw this in a book many years ago, well-intended dragon. So there are some people who will derail your, 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 your train. They'll derail your plans. But there is a way to just let people realize it is not all about me. This is about us. And where I do have the final say, it is not in an authoritative way, I'm not authoritarian, I'm authoritative, but it's for a purpose. Yeah, that brings me to another point that you and I talked about, you know, when we weren't recording. Um, and it's this whole idea of, and you don't see it everywhere, but we see it enough to where we have to talk about it and we have to think about it. And it's this whole idea of, of you know, it seems like over time, pastors become what I call bullies. And they become bullies and in, in, in that execution comes out in a different way. And so why, why does that happen? And, and in my short period of time, and just from eyeballing the landscape of, of pastors, it seems like it's a progression. It doesn't seem like, oh, here, here is this person, this pastor who is a relatively new pastor or a new lead pastor or a new executive pastor, whatever. 
and he just steps into office and you know he's just quote bullying people it seems like it happens over the course of time and so like you know if we're, if we're looking at the numbers you've been passing for 34 years and so what why does that happen and you mean whether you use yourself as an example or maybe a situation you've been close to but why does that happen and then for those that it doesn't happen to what prevents them from becoming becoming bullies or becoming antagonistic or becoming unnecessarily pushy or or edgy i guess you know those are just words that that i could think of that that makes you know it, it gives off a certain feel to, to my question i guess Passes to it because it works. <laughs> it works. You, you, when you bully someone or you bully a, a, a group, you get results. Now, I'm not saying it's the best thing to do. I'm not saying that it's the most profitable thing to do, but it works. So some people try it. Secondly, some people's nature is just, to, just, they're just bullies by nature. And they're very short-sighted. The third thing behind it is, as you gain power and influence, if you're not balanced in your walk with the Lord, if you're not open to two or three responsible persons holding you accountable, it's just a natural flow. The more power you get, the more influence you have, without the grace of God and a humble spirit, it's kind of natural to become a bully. And that, that's, that's how it works. You can become, I believe you could be authoritative without being an authoritarian. And I think that you cannot lead without being authoritative. I just think it's, it's a waste of time to lead without being authoritative. But there, are, there is a very thin line between being authoritative and being a bully. And some people, it works for them. And they're not concerned about the human carnage they're just concerned about the results. And so what ends up happening is you do get results, maybe in the project or the, the plan, but you lose people. Yeah. Um, I, know, I know it's not, th there is a little bit of a cultural difference between pastoring in, in, in America and pastoring in the Bahamas or in the Caribbean. Um, and it seems like, and again, this is just my cross, my small cross section of exposure. But it seems like there is there are more. There are more seasoned pastors. There are there seems to be a lot older, um, and I mean that in age, not just experience, um, pastors at home. And so there's less, I guess, issues if we want to call it that with, with young pastors. And I know that there are churches at home that are that are training young pastors. Um, and I know you're, you know, you've, you've talked to me about, you know, just what it's like trying to find a, a young man who is passionate about, about pastoring and about the church and about the gospel. Um, but even though that may be a difference there versus here, one of the things we have here is there seems to be an onslaught of young pastors. And obviously with, with youth comes um, some great things, but with youth also comes uh, a lot of risk. And so... Uh, what would you what would you say to to young pastors? And and when I say young pastors, I don't necessarily mean the category of young guy that's like, oh, I think I want to be a pastor, or you know, oh, I'm going to go to Christian university because I want to be a pastor. I mean, this is a guy who is like, no, he's been called to the ministry. He has gone through all the steps that the Lord has put him through 
to get to the to get to the seat of full time pastor, whatever that means and whatever it looks like. And so I don't mean in the training phase. I mean like, okay, no, this guy's a he is pastoring, but he's a young guy. He's a young pastor. What would you say to those to those guys? They must have a spirit of humility. And the evidence of that spirit of humility is they have to be they have to willingly place themselves in an accountability situation where you have, if they're married, hopefully they have a strong enough relationship with their wives, or if it's a woman, a husband, to where that spouse can get in your face and really tell you A, B, C, and you would listen. Where you have an older man or older woman, a core of people, three or four, I don't, I'm not talking about a whole team, but three or four individuals who you give full access to getting in your face when necessary, and you are humbled enough to honor what they're saying. That's one. Two, recognize some of the dangers <clears throat> of youth. <clears throat> As I said, when you asked me about what would I say to my 25-year-old self, a lot of energy. Um, but, I mean, as I look back, that's why I said at the beginning of the program, I thank God for the grace of preserving me from some of the mistakes that I would have made. And I, I think a young person has to come to grips with what are some of the potential dangers in that particular age bracket, young in age, but also young in experience. And those two things, if properly viewed, can save a lot of young men in pastoring. Uh, what, what has been the biggest single lesson that you've learned in ministry? Without the power of God, nothing will get done. Literally, that, that, and that's not a cliche. If the Lord is not involved, nothing is going to get done that's of any significance. How, how could you be in full-time ministry and be doing something ministerial and not have God involved? That's easy. You know, Jesus said to the church in, in, uh, in Revelation, I know your works. I know your energy. And I know the things that you hate. And he commended them. And the word works there, is, it, it literally means the amount of energy and and power you put into it. He said, but I have someone against you who have left your first love. It is easy to get caught up in doing the work of God and not spending time with the God that you're doing the work for. Very, very easy. Because you get caught up into the programs, you get caught up into the administration, you get caught up into the things that you love doing, preparing messages, preaching, um, being the face of a work. So it is extremely easy to do the work without the power of God. Very, very easy. And I think the Revelation Church, Ephesus, proved that. So it's easy to do. Uh, what about the hardest decision that you've had to make? I mean, obviously one that you could share um, in ministry. The hardest decision? Well, I have two categories. The hardest decision was moving someone from a position or a responsibility 
that they were passionate about, but just not functional. That, that's, that's very difficult to do. That, that, that's hard. Also, disciplining someone to the point where they have to be removed from the limelight. Those, in the context of people decisions, those are the two most difficult decisions that I would have had to make. In the context of finances, the most difficult decision would have been, do we move forward with this $750,000 project? You know, the fear, yet you, you know God is saying go, but if you, you don't have all of your I's dotted and all of your T's are not crossed, and that's a very difficult decision to make. And so in that area, those are the two categories of very difficult decisions. When you, when you have to spend large amounts of money that's really not sitting in the bank, and then, as I said, dealing with removing a person who's not performing or removing someone for disciplinary reasons. Those are the two categories of tough decisions that I would have had to make and still have to make them even now. Um, so if you had to describe what is your greatest passion, again, in the context of ministry, um, wh what is it? Um, I mean... My greatest passion is taking the Word of God making it as simple as I can in my own training and abilities and giftedness, and through the power of God, sharing that with others and watching that transform their lives. That's my greatest passion. Do you find that your congregation, um, they are receptive to that passion, or do they, do they share it? Because the reason why I'm asking is because um, you, you know this, but... It's easy for us to get caught up into the traditional um, interworkings of, of church life. And so for a lot of people, especially a lot of congregants, it's easy for their passion to be uh, church life things. And, you know, your answer isn't necessarily a church life answer. That's not a, obviously that, that, that that's accomplished through the context of the church. But does, does your congregation meet that passion? Like, do they share that passion? Share it in the context of duplicating it, well, I mean, or have an appreciation for it. Have an appreciation for it. Does that is does, do you find yourself having an uphill battle with um, sharing and mobilizing the passion for, you know, basically a, a simplistic but accurate teaching of the gospel? No, what I find though is it's desired by the people, but sometimes it becomes entertainment. For them, it, their, their joy is that, boy, we heard it, and he, he, but Pastor does a good job of that. He's really gifted, and that's where it stops. So you mean the, the delivering of it is entertaining, and they feel a sense of connection or accomplishment because they were directly involved in or directly, or they were present For when, the it was, when, it was, right. when it was being delivered. So I have to often come back and challenge them that this is not about just hearing, it's about doing. And so I often challenge, what, what has changed in your life over the last five days, over the last seven days, over the last 30 days? Has that always been your ministry passion? From day one. What, what would be a secondary passion? 
my secondary passion would be coming alongside pastors. That'll be my second passion. We don't we don't see a whole lot of that in ministry. Um, it seems like there's there's a, there's still a lot of this there's a lot of um, this this attitude or behavior of competition. You know, churches competing with churches, pastors competing with pastors. I mean, sometimes you drive around uh, a neighborhood or a city or wherever, and there's some. Sometimes there's past. Uh, sometimes there's churches that share a parking lot. You know, or you'll see a you'll see a church that's literally right next door to another church, and and it's interesting. Like my first thought whenever I see that is, I wonder how those guys get along. Like I wonder what 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 they do. Like does Pastor A say to Pastor B? Hey, this is what my schedule for the year is like. Like, does Pastor B say to Pastor A, like, hey, you know, just so you know, we have an event. Like, do they work together? Do they work parallel to each other? And so that's not something that you see very often is other pastors saying, hey, you know what? I'm passionate about you, the pastor, and how you're pastoring. And I'm passionate about your congregation, even though I'm not the one that's pastoring them. So I'm going to take my strengths and come alongside you to help you accomplish the same mission that that I have with just a different congregation, and so like how how have you successfully done that when it doesn't seem to be a common thing? Well, by my evaluation, I've not been successful at it for the simple reasons that you gave earlier. I find that where I've had room for success, <clears throat> it has always been when the other pastor or pastors who I've had the privilege to help to come alongside, they were at their wit's end, if I must put it that way. And from observation, they would say, it appears if, boy, Pastor Beckers doesn't have that problem. Let me go and talk with him. So it's not a preventative thing. It's a rescuing thing. And the rescuing aspect of it comes about because of the competitive I don't need your help. I'm as good as you. Spirit that I have to encounter. Uh, how would you define a failing church? A failing church is a church where there is very little or no connection with the attendees. Where there is coldness. Not, I'm not talking about among one or two persons. I'm, I'm, talking, I'm talking about where generally the general spirit of the church is divisive, where the general spirit of the church is routine, where there isn't an expression of care and concern going on. That's one. Two, the church is failing when it is not proclaiming the word of God as it is, whether it's um, evangel evangelistic, whether it is for spiritual growth. There's not a clear presentation of, of the truths of the word of God, that church is failing. A church is failing when the motivation for them going is something in this realm. In other words, it's because of our reputation, it's because of numbers, it's because, whether that number is number in the context of attendees or in the context of budget, when the motivation is something that is so temporal, the church is failing. So why does that happen? How do churches go 
how do churches get to that point, to that failing point? And then I guess a secondary question is, how do successful churches end up failing? I mean, I'm guessing the answer is, is similar, but but what what causes what causes churches to fail? Losing sight of why they exist, and I mean that may sound simplistic, but that that's really the reason. Why are we here? What's what's our what's our agenda? What's our mandate? When we lose sight of that, sometimes also in they don't lose sight of the mandate. They simply use a worldly means of getting it done, where they are motivated by starter, motivated by something that is separate and apart from passion for the Lord Jesus. And how do you go from being passionate to being cold? By simply losing that passion for the Lord. And that has to be driven. That has to be promoted. It has to be practiced. It has to be called into account. And it is, just as I said earlier, it's very easy to go from good to bad. It's extremely difficult to go from bad to good. And I think human nature, entropy, the law of entropy proves that. Thermodynamics. So here you have this whole issue of losing sight of why we're here. And then sometimes you have leaders that are just tired. They're just burnt out. They slacken their ride. You have congregations that are burnt out, very little motivation. Uh, and these things just happen over time. They, they happen. And so you have pastored three different congregations. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd have to have a whole a different conversation as to what those congregations were like. Um, even just from my memory, they were all distinctively different. Um, and so we'd have to have a different conversation just to kind of get some clarification on that. But if you were to start a church again, because the cur- your current congregation was basically a startup. I mean, yeah, I mean, not mm-hmm. we use that word, but it wasn't a it wasn't a church that existed already, and then you took it over. No, um, I mean, everything about the church's DNA represents you in some way, right? Because it it, it was started by you and and some other people, and so. Um, and that was how many years ago? 19. Okay, so are you doing anything for your 20th anniversary? Yes. Um, okay, so you're coming up on 20 years. Mm-hmm. And if you had to start another congregation, another work all over again from scratch, but you didn't have any money issues. And no, you know, whenever we talk about church planting or church startups, you know, money, finances is really what causes us to have you know, to take long periods of time, I guess. And so if you didn't have any finance issues, if you had a blank check, what would be the things that you would say, this is vital to start a church for long-term success? I mean, 20 years doesn't sound long, but that is long when you th- when you think about, wow, this church was started literally from the ground up. I mean, that, that's also a figurative statement, but I mean, like, I remember seeing that parking lot or what not even a parking lot it was just just a square with rocks and some trees on it and so you know i think it's interesting to and and also kind of cool to be 35 years old and be like oh yeah i was a part of that because a lot of the churches that you go to there they're they're old and established mm-hmm. churches and so you know i have the church where i am now i have to go back and look at the record books and look at the old pictures and look at the old school flyovers to be like oh yeah that was an open field but I remember when the, the the church that you're 
pastoring now. I remember being a part of that. And so what would you say this is vital? These things have to be in place if I'm going to start a new congregation, a new work, a new ministry, but I, but I had a blank check. My first move would be to have preferably, preferably, not necessarily dogmatically, but preferably five couples who are committed to extending the arm of the current work. Now, now when you say that, you mean five couples that you would have on staff, like you would hire these people? No, these are five couples who would be in the congregation who would have bought into the passion that I might have or the leadership would have to create another assembly. And I would invest in them for about a year, a year and a half uh, of training, nurturing, coming alongside and getting them, getting that core ready to go and start a work, as opposed to just a guy and his wife. That'd be the first thing I would invest in. Um, and then depending on the ages of their children, that would be the core. And with that, you automatically have a minimum of 10 committed persons right off the bat. 10 committed persons who could help to stabilize the work if it gets a little shaky. 10 persons who are committed to financial giving. 10 persons who are committed to balancing out the work and sharing the load. 10 persons that are on the same page, same language, same motivation, same desire. That would be what I would invest in before we would have our first service. That's why I would invest my time and my money. All right. Um, so what, what other things in addition to the five couples? Then I, I would find a location that's appropriate what we want to do. And you, you said money wasn't an issue. I would ensure that they have the, mo the basic equipment to get started. A roof over their head with adequate, you know, paying for the facility, having the basic stuff to start, audiovisual, um, training material, furniture, chairs, just the basic essentials. Because one of the things that I see at home, and I guess it happens other places too, people start up and they don't even have a podium. And I'm not saying that you must have a podium. I'm saying that just to show some of the most fundamental things that are necessary to make a work attractive, they don't have. And I'm not talking about anything that's ostentatious. I'm just simply talking about basic equipment. For example, I got a call from a church the other day, and they don't have any chairs. They want our church to donate some chairs to them. Now, I'm thinking, your congregation, you don't have any chairs? And then when I investigated, that chairs were destroyed during the hurricane. And so my follow-up question then was, so where are you meeting now? Well, they're not meeting because they don't have chairs. That's so fundamental. So since Dorian, which has been over a year, this church has not been consistently meeting because they cannot afford 20 chairs, 30 chairs, 40 chairs. So I would ensure that they have the most fundamental basic equipment to get started, to where that is not an issue. And that's a major problem for a lot of startup works. Yeah. <clears throat> so we, we started our conversation with, you know, me asking you about retirement. Mm. Um, 
And I've learned in a very short period, uh, I shouldn't say short period of time, it didn't take me very long to learn that you have to be very, very careful when you ask a pastor about retirement, <laughs> especially as a young pastor, because I found that, you know, they're, they're thinking, why are you trying to take my spot? You know, like, I mean, I guess anyone would think that if someone's asking him about retirement. But I'll, you know, I guess my my the closing part of our conversation i'm always curious to know um just what other people would what, what people would do if they weren't doing what they're doing and so if you weren't pastoring full time um what what would you do what what other what other things would you do or want to do or could see yourself doing um if you weren't pastoring full time if i wasn't pastoring full time I would like to be a fill-in pastor ministering to pastors who have gotten into trouble in ministry. Well, and it does not matter the nature of the problem. It could be simple as burnout. It can be as simple as a moral issue. It could be as simple as family issues. It could just simply be a, a, a pastor who has had just nothing but conflict and tension with his board. I would also like to nurture churches that have gone through a difficult time. That's what I would give myself to if I was not f- pastoring full time. Any, um, any non-ministry goals and or desires? Non-ministry goals. Yeah, I, I would like to create a, I don't want to call it a family life center. I would like to create an environment to where wholesome, clean entertainment could go on on a regular basis for all ages, that's stimulating, that is educational, that is just downright fun, Uh, but it's in a clean environment. Uh, A clean environment meaning clean, a clean vocabulary, clean dress, a clean presentation. I, I believe that that's so essential for wholesome development of a society with a twist. In America, you say, you know, something of faith. At home, we say Christian base. That's what I would put my time and energy into. So reinvesting into the community at large through, through you know, some kind of community effort, but that was gospel-focused. Yes, and to, to simply provide fun entertainment for people in an environment that is wholesome and beneficial moral mentally emotionally spiritually and physically yeah well um this hopefully is the first of um a few conversations that we'll have um just just like i said just just conversations with someone who's been um, pastoring for a long time um and for me, it's you know, it's a different it's a different perspective because I've been on the sidelines of of your ministry as a son for a long time, and then you know, obviously now being in full time ministry myself as a partner in a different way. And so it's it's always interesting and and fun to learn and watch, and also just kind of like search my mind's eye of of the things that I've been exposed to from that regard. So thanks for being on the show, and then we will continue our. Um, just conversations um, about about other ministry related things thanks for the opportunity this is the how did i get here podcast